Chapter Seventeen of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Seventeen. Alan slept soundly for several hours, but the long strain of the preceding day did not make him overreach the time he had set for himself, and he was up at six o'clock. Wegaruk had not forgotten her old habits, and a tub filled with cold water was waiting for him. He bathed, shaved himself, put on fresh clothes, and promptly at seven was at breakfast. The table at which he ordinarily sat alone was in a little room with double windows, through which, as he enjoyed his meals, he could see most of the habitations of the range. Unlike the average Eskimo dwellings, they were neatly built of small timber brought down from the mountains, and were arranged in orderly fashion like the cottages of a village strung out prettily on a single street. A sea of flowers lay in front of them, and at the end of the row, built on a little knoll that looked down into one of the watered hollows of the tundra, was Sokwena's cabin. Because Sokwena was the old man of the community, and therefore the wisest, and because with him lived his foster daughters, Keok and Navadluk, the loveliest of Alan's tribal colony, Sokwena's cabin was next to Alan's in size. And Alan, looking at it now and then, as he ate his breakfast, saw a thin spiral of smoke rising from the chimney, but no other sign of life. The sun was already up, almost to its highest point, a little more than halfway between the horizon and the zenith, performing the apparent miracle of rising in the north and travelling east instead of west. Alan knew the men-folk of the village had departed hours ago for the distant herds. Always... When the reindeer drifted into the higher and cooler feeding grounds of the foothills, there was this apparent abandonment, and after last night's celebration, the women and children were not yet awaked to the activities of the long day, where the rising and setting of the sun meant so little. As he rose from the table, he glanced again towards Sokwena's cabin. A solitary figure had climbed up out of the ravine and stood against the sun of the cloth-top. Even at that distance, with the sun in his eyes, he knew it was Mary Standish. He turned his back stoically to the window and lighted his pipe. For half an hour after that he sorted out his papers and range-books in preparation for the coming of Tautuk and Amuk Tulik, and when they arrived, the minute hand of his watch was at the hour of eight. That the months of his absence had been prosperous ones, he perceived by the smiling eagerness in the brown faces of his companions, as they spread out the papers on which they had, in their own crude fashion, set down a record of the winter's happenings. Tautuk's voice, slow and very deliberate, in its unfailing effort to master English without a slip, had in it a subdued note of satisfaction and triumph, 
while Amok Tulik, who was quick and staccato in his manner of speech, using sentences seldom of greater length than three or four words, and who picked up slang and swear words like a parrot, swelled with pride as he lighted his pipe, and then rubbed his hands with a rasping sound that always sent a chill up Alan's back. "'A very fine and prosper year,' said Tautuk, in response to Alan's first question as to general conditions. "'We've been very fortunate.' "'One hell of a good year,' backed up Amok Tulik with the quickness of a gun. "'Plenty calf, good hoof, moss, little wolf, herds fat, this year she peach.' After this opening of the matter in hand, Alan buried himself in the affairs of the range, and the old thrill, the glow which comes through achievement, and the pioneer's pride in marking a new frontier with the creative forces of success rose uppermost in him, and he forgot the passing of time. A hundred questions he had to ask, and the tongues of Tautuk and Amuktulik were crowded with the things they desired to tell him. Their voices filled the room with the pain of triumph. His herds had increased by a thousand head during the fawning months of April and May, and interbreeding of the Asiatic stock with the wild woodland caribou had produced a hundred calves of the super-animal whose flesh was bound to fill the markets of the States within a few years. Never had the moss been thicker under the winter snow. There had been no destructive fires, Soft hoof had escaped them, breeding records had been beaten, and daring in the edge of the Arctic was no longer an experiment, but an established fact. For Tautuk now had seven deer giving a pint and half of milk each twice a day, nearly as rich as the best of cream from cattle, and more than twenty that were delivering from a cupful to a pint at a milking. And to this Aumuk Tulik added the amazing record of their running deer, Kauk. The three-year-old had drawn a sledge five miles over unbeaten snow in thirteen minutes and forty-seven seconds. Kauk and Olo, in team, had drawn the same sledge ten miles in twenty-six minutes and forty seconds, and one day he had driven the two ninety-eight miles in a mighty endurance test and with Eno and Sutka, the first of their interbreed, with a wild woodland caribou and heavier beasts, he had drawn a load of eight hundred pounds for three consecutive days at the rate of forty miles a day. From Fairbanks, Tanana, and the ranges of the seaward peninsula, agents of the swiftly spreading industry had offered as high as a hundred and ten dollars a head for breeding stock, with the blood of the woodland caribou and of these native and larger caribou of the tundras and forests, seven young bulls and nine female calves had been captured and added to their own propagative forces. For Alan this was triumph. He saw nothing of what it all meant in the way of ultimate personal fortune. It was the earth under his feet, the vast expanse of unpeopled waste traduced and scorned in the blindness of a hundred million people which he saw fighting itself on the glory and reward of the conqueror through such achievement as is this a land betrayed rising at last out of the slime of political greed and ignorance a giant irresistible in its awakening that was destined in his lifetime to rock the destiny of a continent 
It was Alaska, rising up slowly but inexorably out of its eternity of sleep, mountain-sealed forces of a great land that was once the cradle of the earth, coming into possession of life and power again. And his own feeble efforts in that long and fighting process of planting the seeds which meant its ultimate ascendancy possessed in themselves their own reward. Long after Tautuk and Amuk Tulik had gone, his heart was filled with the song of success. He was surprised at the swiftness with which time had gone when he looked at his watch. It was almost dinner hour when he had finished with his papers and books and went outside. He heard Wegaruk's voice coming from the dark mouth of the underground icebox, dug into the frozen subsoil of the tundra, and pausing at the glimmer of his old housekeeper's candle, he turned aside, descended the few steps, and entered quietly into the big square chamber, eight feet under the surface, where the earth had remained steadfastly frozen for some hundreds of thousands of years. Wegaruk had a habit of talking when alone but Alan thought it odd that she would be explaining to herself that the tundra soil, in spite of its almost tropical summer richness and luxuriance, never thawed deeper than three or four feet, below which point remained the icy cold placed there so long ago that even the spirits did not know. He smiled when he heard Wegaruk measuring time and faith in terms of spirits, which he had never quite given up for the missionaries, and was about to make his presence known when a voice interrupted him, so close at his side that the speaker, concealed in the shadow of the wall, could have reached out a hand and touched him. "'Good morning, Mr. Holt.' It was Mary Standish, and he stared rather foolishly to make her out in the gloom. "'Good morning,' he replied. "'I was on my way to your place when Wegaruk's voice brought me here. "'You see, even this icebox seems like a friend after my experience in the States. "'Are you after a steak, Mammy?' he called. "'Wegaruk's strong squat figure turned as she answered him, "'and the limit from her candle glowing brightly in a split tomato can "'fell clearly upon Mary Standish as the old woman waddled toward them.' It was as if a spotlight had been thrown upon the girl, suddenly out of a pit of darkness, and something about her, which was not her prettiness or the beauty that was in her eyes and hair, sent a sudden and unaccountable thrill through Alan. It remained with him when they drew back out of gloom and chill into sunshine and warmth, leaving Wegaruk to snuff her tomato can lantern and follow with a stake and it did not leave him when they walked over the tundra together towards Sokwenna's cabin. It was a puzzling thrill, stirring an emotion which it was impossible for him to subdue or explain, something which he knew he should understand but could not, and it seemed to him that knowledge of this mystery was in the girl's face, glowing in a gentle embarrassment as she told him she had been expecting him, and that Keok and Nawadluk had given up the cabin to them, so that he might question her uninterrupted. But with this soft flush of her uneasiness revealing itself in her eyes and cheeks, he saw neither fear nor hesitation. In the big room of Sukwena's cabin, which was patterned after his own, he sat down amid the color and delicate fragrance of masses of flowers, and the girl seated herself near him and waited for him to speak. 
"'You love flowers,' he said lamely. "'I want to thank you for the flowers you placed in my cabin, and uh, the other things.' "'Flowers are a habit with me,' she replied, "'and I have never seen such flowers as these. "'Flowers and birds. I never dreamt that there were so many up here.' "'Nor the world,' he added. "'It is ignorant of Alaska.' He was looking at her, trying to understand the inexplicable something about her. She knew what was in his mind, because the strangely thrilling emotion that possessed him could not keep its betrayal from his eyes. The color was fading slowly out of her cheeks. Her lips grew a little tense, yet in her attitude of suspense and of waiting there was no longer a suspicion of embarrassment, no trace of fear, and no sign that a moment was at hand when her confidence was on the ebb. In this moment Alan did not think of John Graham. It seemed to him that she was like a child again, the child who had come to him in his cabin, and who had stood with her back against his cabin door, entreating him to achieve the impossible, an angel almost, with her smooth, shining hair, her clear, beautiful eyes, her white throat, which waited with its little heart-throb for him to beat down the fragile defense which now lay in the greater power of his own hands. The inequality of it, and the pitilessness of what had been in his mind to say and do, together with an inundating sense of his own brute mastery, swept over him, and in sudden desperation he reached out his hands toward her and cried, "'Mary Standish, in God's name tell me the truth. Tell me why you have come up here.' I have come, she said, looking at him steadily, because I know that a man like you, when he loves a woman, will fight for her and protect her, even though he may not possess her. But you didn't know that, not until the Cottonwoods, he protested. Yes, I did. I knew it in Ellen McCormick's cabin. She rose slowly before him, and he too rose to his feet, staring at her like a man who had been struck, while intelligence, a dawning reason, an understanding of the strange mystery of her that morning, sent the still greater thrill of its shock through him. He gave an exclamation of amazement. You were at Ellen McCormick's. She gave you that? She nodded. Yes, the dress you brought from the ship. Please don't scold me, Mr. Holt. Be a little kind with me when you have heard what I am going to tell you. I was in the cabin that last day when you returned from searching for me in the sea. Mr. McCormick didn't know, but she did. I lied a little, just a little, so that she, being a woman, would promise not to tell you I was there. You see, I had lost a great deal of my faith, and my courage was about gone, and I was afraid of you. Afraid of me? Yes, afraid of everybody. I was in the room behind Ellen McCormick when she asked you that question, and when you answered as you did, I was like stone. I was amazed and didn't believe, for I was certain that after what had happened on the ship you despised me, and only through a peculiar sense of honor were making the search for me. 
not until two days later when your letters came to helen mccormick and we read them you opened both of course one was to be read immediately the other when i was found and i had found myself maybe it wasn't exactly fair but you couldn't expect two women to resist the, a temptation like that and i wanted to know she did not lower her eyes or turn her head aside as she made the confession her gaze met alan's with beautiful steadiness and then i believed i knew because of what you said in that letter that you were the one man in all the world who would help me and give me a fighting chance if i came to you but it has taken all my courage and in the end you will drive me away again he looked upon the miracle of tears in wide open unfaltering eyes tears which she did not brush away but through which in a moment she smiled at him as no woman had ever smiled at him before and with the tears there seemed to possess her a pride which lifted her above all confusion a living spirit of will and courage and womanhood that broke away the dark clouds of suspicion and fear that had gathered in his mind he tried to speak and his lips were thick you have come because you know i love you and you because from the beginning it must have been a great faith in you that inspired me alan holt there must have been more than that he persisted some other reason two she acknowledged and now he noticed that with the dissolution of tears a flush of color was returning to her cheeks and those one it is impossible for you to know the other if i tell you will make you despise me i am sure of that it has to do with john graham she bowed her head yes with john graham for the first time long lashes hid her eyes from him and for a moment it seemed that her resolution was gone and she stood stricken by the import of the thing that lay behind his question yet her cheeks flamed red instead of paling and when she looked at him again her eyes burned with a lustrous fire john graham she repeated the man you hate and want to kill slowly he turned toward the door i'm leaving immediately after dinner to inspect the herds up in the foothills he said and you are welcome here he caught the swift intake of her breath as she paused for an instant at the door and saw the new light that leaped into her eyes thank you alan holt she cried softly oh i thank you and then suddenly she stopped him with a little cry as if at last something had broken away from her control he faced her and for a moment they stood in silence i'm sorry sorry i said to you what i did that night on the gnome she said i accused you of brutality of unfairness of of even worse than that and i want to take it all back you are big and clean and splendid for you would go away now knowing i'm poisoned by an association with a man who has injured you so terribly and you say i am welcome 
and I don't want you to go. You have made me want to tell you who I am and why I have come to you, and I pray God you will think as kindly of me as you can when you have heard. End of chapter 17 of The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood Read by Lars Rolander